As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 is what we want to study together tonight, and you'll find that text on page 299 of a chairback Bible that should be nearby you. As I said earlier, what we want to begin tonight, which is a study I trust stretching out something like three to four months, is looking into the life of Elijah for reasons I, I think will become clear soon enough. But we're going to start out by introducing ourselves to this wonderful servant of God tonight in the first seven verses. So let me read them for us and then pray for God's blessing and, and we'll begin together. So uh, listen once again as the Lord speaks through his perfect word. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kirith, which is in the east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook, for I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that your word is truth, and by your truth you sanctify us, and that in your scriptures we find encouragement through the examples of your servants that have gone before us, that we might learn from their failings, that we might learn also from their triumphs, that we would observe the grace that you have extended to them, and that they might point us always to your Son, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. So bless us this night as we want to learn from this truth. Open our minds to study it with diligence, to receive it with meekness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I imagine that some of your homes were like the home of my youth, a house full of books. And as I often have reflected back on various scenes from my childhood, I can picture rather vividly book spines staring at me from various parts of the house. And in the stone house of my youth, a number of those spines that would be staring at me were spines of big, thick biographies. I can think of big, bulky biographies on politicians and theologians that were down in the family room. In the home of my youth, it was very much a missionary-minded home, and so there were many biographies that belonged to missionaries, particularly in the 19th century, that captured our attention. I can even vividly recall these covers in this series that was called The Childhood of Great American Heroes, reading about Sitting Bull and Harry Houdini and infatuated with the childhood of baseball players like Babe Ruth and, and Lou Gehrig. And as I've thought about that throughout my life as the years have continued to pass by, I genuinely think I could almost mark my spiritual life with a biography that the Lord used to season a period of time after reading that biography. Seven to eight years, perhaps even as much as 10 to 15 years 
And if you know anything about the study of church history, I think it's quite fair to say that outside of Scripture, few, if any genres, have so thoroughly equipped Christians in grace and urged them to pursue godliness like biography. Certainly even goes back to even the hagiographies that belonged to the early church, these stories of saints that were held up as examples for Christians to follow. And part of the reason that I want to help us in the coming weeks to stop and stare at Elijah is because the Bible itself holds up Elijah as a man worth our attention, one from whom we must learn. And maybe the simplest way I could even prove that to you is the way that First Kings as a book works. Because if you went all the way back to chapter 11, it's there that Solomon dies. And that's the narrative for the first 11 chapters of First Kings. It's occupied slowly but surely with Solomon's life. And then what happens in chapters 12 and following to our text tonight, the story of God's people, it races along ever faster as the accounts and lives of kings are recalled ever quicker. And then all of a sudden, against all expectation here in chapter 17, it's almost as though the narrative that's been barreling forward for years and years and years in Israel's history just stops because Elijah showed up. It's almost though God in his own word wants us to realize that we too, we should stop and, and stare at Elijah's life. I mean, Elijah is the prophet most often mentioned in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament prophet. When Jesus was transfigured there on the mount with the three inner disciples, who's he talking to on that mount where he's shining forth in radiant glory? But Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets. It's why throughout church history, so many people have studied the life of Elijah as a uniquely powerful example of what it means to be a servant of the Lord. It's why F.B. Meyer called Elijah a colossus among men. Alexander White referred to him as a Mount Sinai of a man with a heart like a thunderstorm. Elijah was, according to Bishop Hall, the most eminent prophet reserved for the most corrupt age. But perhaps... The most stunning statement that you can find on Elijah is what we find in James chapter 5. In context, uh, the book there is talking about the prayer of a righteous man, the prayer of faith. And uh, You might know in around verse 17 when it starts speaking about Elijah, it says this, and it ought to be altogether striking. Elijah was a man with a nature just like us. And so when you stare into these pages of this servant of God, what you're seeing is someone who's just like you. Courage and conviction boom forth in certain scenes. Other parts of his life are full of weakness and wandering. There are times of great triumph. There's also times of great trial. There are times when it seems like nothing can stop him. And there are times where it seems like he's barely hanging by a thread. If you know Elijah's story, you know why James would say he's a man with a nature just like us. And so all I want to do tonight is introduce you to this servant named Elijah. 
Now we'll see it in a few different ways, and by the end, think about some lessons we might learn from him. But the first thing I want you to know about this servant of God is that God sends him. That God sends his servants. You see the first phrase of verse 1 in chapter 17 simply says, Now Elijah. The original language actually says, And Elijah said. It's a clear continuation from what he's just said in the paragraph before. So we need to know something about what's going on in God's people and among God's people in the paragraph before. So, if you go back, what you find out in verse 29 through 33 is that this man named Ahab is now king of God's people. And the common refrain by this point in 1 Kings, to to show the evil and simple wickedness of a king in Israel, is just to say he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam, you might know his story, who thought it was such a good idea in Exodus 32, for Israel to fall into sin by making golden calves, he decided, hey, we should make some more golden calves and bring Israel even to further sin. But if you notice what we're told in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 16, we're told that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So much so, it was as if it had been a light thing, you see in verse 31, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam was little on the Richter scale of idolatry and iniquity when compared to Ahab. He married, you notice as the text continues, this violent and vicious woman, the text will soon tell us, named Jezebel. He instituted Baal worship. He even did something quite silly, the text would tell us in other places. He built, rebuilt He rebuilt Jericho and lost his sons as a result. And the Lord said in previous parts of Israel's history, well, if you rebuild Jericho, you're going to lose your firstborn and you're going to lose your youngest. And so enough that happens with Ahab. And so what you need to understand is that when Elijah shows up, the royal family, the highest household in the land, has sold its soul to the devil. And then came Elijah. And you notice what we're told about Elijah. Simply that he's a Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead. That would be like saying today, Stone is a Texan from Texas, but nobody knows what Texas is. It's altogether unimportant, this place of Tishbe. That he's a Tishbite is utterly meaningless to people. But isn't that the way that the Lord often works with his servants? It's in the midst of silence. This suddenness of his word shows up. It all seems dark. There's a light that's getting ready to shine forth. I think part of the reason that Christians throughout the ages have loved the story of Elijah so much is Christians throughout the ages have always felt the darkness of the world in which they live. Our time is nothing like times in centuries past. You open up your morning paper, your morning news source, and it seems like the headlines only speak further of a slippery slide into sin. That's why Christians throughout every age, they just see things getting worse and worse and worse. Christians in every generation, ours is the worst that has ever lived. It seems dark out there because it is dark out there. And what are you going to do when that slippery slope into sin greets you? Well, certainly, the devil's temptation is to despair, to be despondent, to think all is lost. 
But the witness of Scripture, and certainly here in the life of Elijah, is the truth that the Lord is going to have a witness. He's always prepared his servant. Now, you can trust that when evil seems to run unchecked, when the government pumps out paganism into the world, when it seems as though the church is on the brink of collapse, the Lord is in his sovereignty, according to his providence, sorting it all out. He has someone ready for the time. He has truth to be given. He has a, a word for his people. And so we have God sending his servant. But the next thing you need to see is that God speaks through his servant. Look at what Elijah says to Ahab in verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, you need to understand two things about this simple sermon that Elijah just spoke to Ahab. So, students, two simple things. The first is that it's a confrontational word. This Baal worship was going throughout the land. Baal was popularly understood at the time as the lord of rain and dew in the ancient Near Eastern world. There was even a poem in the ancient Near Eastern text that said this, quote, The heavens rain oil, the wadis run with honey. So there's fertility and harvest in land. So I know that the mighty one Baal lives. Lo, that the prince, the lord of the earth, exists. And in one short, stunning speech, what does God say through Elijah? There is one God who lives, and I'm going to show you exactly who's in charge of the rain and the dew. It's a gauntlet-throwing word. You, Ahab, and you people that think that Baal is in charge of the heavens opening and rain coming down upon the earth. Well, guess what? You're getting ready to learn that he's not. And you're going to learn that for a long time. As the story progresses, it's for three and a half years that famine and drought strikes the land. Uh, do you ever wonder if sometimes there might be things like famine and drought, earthquakes and natural disasters, other things in this world that God keeps sending upon us and part of the reason he keeps sending them upon us is because we keep not noticing what those are supposed to communicate because the nation of Israel was supposed to notice what those curses were to communicate because it's not just a confrontational word it's a cursing word in Deuteronomy 28 the Lord says here are the curses that will fall upon my people if they don't listen to me and somewhere in and around I don't know I think it's verse 24 or so he starts speaking about these curses that are going to fall upon the land. And he says the land is going to become, if you don't obey, it's going to become as iron. That the heavens are going to become as brass. For three and a half years, Israel is going to learn an object lesson about a curse for their disobedience. And it's quite striking, isn't it? That for three and a half years, it doesn't seem like anything changes. So God sends his servant, and God speaks through his servant. And the rest of the chapter, I'm sorry, the text tonight, deals with God sustaining. So God sustains his servant. Notice the second word that comes, verse 2 and 3, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is in the east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. 
What's interesting about the life of a prophet in the Old Testament is not only that they preached God's word and proclaimed God's truth, they often participated in God's word, became an enacted parable of God's truth. And that's actually happening here in Elijah's life with his appearance and his disappearance. Because in his appearance before Ahab, he's this enacted reality of what the Lord's servant, Israel, should be. Submitting to God's word and devoted to God's word. Living by God's word. So when he shows up before Ahab's court and says, this is getting ready to happen, the land's going to become as iron, the heavens are going to become as brass, he's embodying what Israel should be, submitting to the Lord. And the very next word that comes to Elijah is like, get out of town. You need to go all the way east to this brook that we know little about, this brook Kerith. And it's in that disappearance that he's also an enacted parable of God's truth. Because what was also true at this time is that prophets, of course, weren't merely the ones who preached God's word. They were often the bearers of God's word. So Elijah's disappearance to the desert, it symbolizes the word of the Lord's disappearance from his people for three and a half years. Just as there's going to be a famine in the land, it's symbolic of a greater and deeper spiritual reality that there's a famine of the word. Among God's people. You know, as I've been gone these recent three months, and we've had the opportunity every week to be in different churches, uh, here, there, and everywhere. There's all kinds of things that stand out, and and one of the ones that that stood out in some churches uh, that we attended was there was an absolute famine of the word in the service. Uh, It was as though God's people had no special place for God's word. Perhaps there's more churches than we think that have famines like that. But lest we puff ourselves up with our own self-righteousness, we went to many churches that had a rich dwelling of the word in the heart of the people. But just because the word is present there doesn't mean that there isn't a famine for hearing the word. That God's word can come week after week after week. And surely it ought to be something that strikes you, and kids understand this to be true. By God's grace, you're in a church that aims to give you God's word week after week after week. But that doesn't mean that your own heart isn't full of a famished life towards the Lord's word. It might be nothing more than Lord's word coming you week after week after week, and your heart is like brass. Your mind is like iron. The truth has disappeared from the land of your soul. And what a terrifying thing it is when that happens. So picture Elijah then. He's by this brook. Uh, Kids, if you know anything about sources of water, a brook's not that big, right? It's not a river. It's it's not a creek. It's not a stream. It's It's a little brook. And it's there each morning and evening he has these little winged chefs showing up. Ravens. Who in the ancient Israelite culture were unclean birds. And it's there that the Lord has him hide out. Doesn't it use the language, verse 3, of hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of Jordan. The Lord is stashing Elijah away in solitude and silence for three years. 
And sometimes I think the Lord often does that with his people and we don't realize that's what he's doing with us. Because of course, more literally and physically speaking, the Lord's probably not sending any of us tonight to go eastward to a brook in the middle of nowhere. But he might, according to his word, be sending you into a season of sickness, bereavement, difficulty, trial, tribulation, that seems like it's a place in a spiritual desert. And yet in the Lord's kindness, what he means, that place in the wilderness is actually going to be an oasis of his provision for you. It's actually there in the wilderness that he's going to prepare you for what he has called you to do. It's actually there only in the solitude, in the silence, in the difficulty, in the isolation that he's going to ready you and equip you for that which he calls you to do. So the Lord sustains him in the exact same way. You'll notice verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So this is the first picture we get of Elijah, God's servant. He's sent. The Lord speaks through him. The Lord sustains him. And you can be sure that for those that God calls to himself today, all of his children who are meant to be his servants in his kingdom, that he's sending you, that he's speaking through you, that he's sustaining you. Just this afternoon, I was up in the study in our house and I happened to have my eyes fall upon an old book by an author named Ian Murray. It's got the simplest of titles, Heroes. And so I pulled out the book and found a quote in the preface from a 17th century English preacher and historian named Thomas Fuller, who said, History makes a young man to be old without either wrinkles or gray hairs. And that's exactly what happens when you study the lives of these saints gone by. You don't have to be that old to know the wisdom, the discernment, the power of their example of godliness in our life. And so all I want to do rather briefly as we close tonight is think about three specific lessons that we're meant to learn about this servant of the Lord here in the first seven verses of Elijah 17. The first of which is this. We must have earnestness in the word. Earnestness in the word. You don't need to turn there. But in James chapter 5, when James is talking about Elijah, it says he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And it's a striking A passage there in the New Testament because it causes us to wonder, those of us who who think about the Bible in this way, is, well, why did he pray for it not to rain when the Lord clearly is saying through him to Ahab, it's not going to rain? Well, some people would say, well, actually it's the New Testament telling us in its inspiration that Elijah, before he went to Ahab, because he knew his Old Testament well enough, was already praying in light of Israel's disobedience and constant obstinance that the Lord would actually bring the covenant curses to bear upon the people so he could break through their hard hearts. Or maybe it's after the word comes through him to Ahab that he's praying for the Lord's word to actually come true. And it really doesn't matter in my mind which one of them it is. Because it's clear, according to the New Testament, that he prayed earnestly for God's word to become true. I wonder what prayers you earnestly offered this week that God's word would be true in your life. 
One of the richest things you can do this week is remind your heart of God's character. He is faithful and just. So in prayer, God, you must be faithful and just. God, you've promised to supply every one of my needs in Jesus Christ. So do it. Because we need it. Sometimes, don't you think that our prayers perhaps lack power like Elijah's prayers had? Because they're so empty of God's word. Like the old mighty masters would say that we don't sue God on the basis of his promises in our prayer. So there's earnestness in the word. There's also, of course, obedience with the word. Because notice what we're told in Verse 5, he gets this word to depart and go to the brook. And it simply says, notice it, students. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Uh, Here's a man, as best we can tell, that has no profound religious performance. No long, exhaustive CV of his pedigree in Israel. The only thing that God requires from his servants is their obedience. The Lord has said it, so I will do it. And how true it is, one of the ordinary glories that belongs to a Christian's obedience is its speed. The Lord says it, yes, I will do it. So there's earnestness, there's obedience, and no doubt, thirdly, finally, there's dependence upon the word. Because you see again, what we're told in verse 4 at the end, you're going to drink by the brook from which I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So morning and evening... He had before his very eyes and in his very belly itself the Lord's word providing for him. And then strikingly, actually what happens, as you would suppose would happen in a place with famine for three plus years, look at verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And where we, Lord willing, will pick up next week is in verse 8 and following what happens. The word comes again and takes Elijah to a place where God will again provide for him, sustain him. And I think it's here in this sustenance and provision of the Lord and his grace for Elijah that you see something of that sustaining provision that God has for us in Jesus Christ. For Elijah was meant to embody Israel as their representative prophet. And of course, Jesus Christ embodied Israel. And he wasn't spared the punishment that sinners deserved. But in his obedience unto death on the cross, what does he now offer to his people? By his very word in the gospel, living water, heavenly bread, the Lord's promise, I will sustain you. I will meet every need according to my riches of glory in Jesus Christ. So this week, it belongs to us, doesn't it? To know something of that earnestness. Something of that obedience. Something of that dependence on Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do recognize that we have fallen so far short of your call to trust and obey, your call to depend upon you in all things. 
Now, Lord, we ask that we would know something about this humility of Elijah in our lives. That we might remember that Elijah pointed us forward to that great provision that's found in Christ Jesus. And so in the midst, perhaps, of our own spiritual wanderings this week, our isolation even, the duties that you have entrusted to us, that we would find that provision of daily bread that's found in your Son alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.